Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Eccentric muscle contractions are weird, and if you don't believe me, just stay tuned a little bit longer. Get to know this highly advantageous training tool this week with Dr. Lindsay Lepley of UConn. Studies are currently being conducted under Lepley on eccentrics with both animals and humans. Their neurological and physiological implications are amazing, but they have to be performed in a very specific prescription, according to Lepley. The results of the tests are showing rapid rehabilitation and a whole host of other benefits. Learn how to integrate them into your training today. This is episode 269. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> it's Friday. Friday. Technically, what day? It's technically Friday. Rainy. Friday. Friday. A rainy day in Austin, technically. Rainy day. Oh, you know, God. Power Athlete Nation, I owe you a massive apology. I know it's been probably 18 to 19 episodes that you have not received a weather update, a local forecast at Power Athlete HQ in, in Austin, Texas. I'm looking out now at about a 100% chance of rain because it's fucking raining. It's a little soupy. It's a little wet. But you know what? That doesn't stop us. That doesn't stop the Internet. There's all sorts of inclement weather everywhere around the world that does not slow down this episode from blowing out your eardrums, right? Or any episode for that matter. Any episode. And in case you're like, hey, I forget, what did I press play on? You're listening to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and And conditioning. conditioning. This is Power Athlete Radio with your hosts, Luke and Tex. And just us two. Yep. Not featuring anyone else. Just a couple of slugs out in the out in the barn here at Power Athlete HQ about to get sassy with some eccentric training knowledge bombs. Listen, here's a little pre-brief for y'all. You have three types of muscle contractions, they say, right? Because Tex, all this is just theory anyways, right? Yeah, sliding filament theory. <laughs> you have a concentric muscle contraction. You're gonna need you're going to need to know this, people. If you were to take the king of all performance training exercises, the barbell curl, and you grab a light barbell for a light barbell day, and let's say you're going, uh, you're going for 12, so you grab a 90, right? 90 pounds. And as you curl that sucker up and you build a peak with your biceps, that is the shortening phase of the lift. That's the concentric muscle contraction. Am I Correct. right, Tex? And then as you're squeezing at the top, working the peak, you are in an isometric muscle contraction. Yeah, force equals resistance. Force equals resistance, people. And as you let your guard down and you let force exceed resistance, and you start to do the negative, which is where you get the, you know, the pump. That's the eccentric phase of the lift. The lengthening. And our guest today is going to blow your minds on the therapeutic, practical, clinical opportunities that we have as coaches and as athletes to pay mindful attention to how we execute the eccentric phase of training people. But first we have an announcement. Is Wade's army on? Yeah. Well, at this point it's about to be. Okay. But first we have an announcement. Wade's army 2018 campaign is about to kick off. That's right, people. That little rumble you felt, that wasn't your stomach churning. That wasn't you running over a speed bump. That was the earth, the flat earth shifting on its axis. (laughs) (laughs) Because the power athletes bring in 
a hell of a, way, a fundraising effort to Wade's Army this year. For those of you who don't know, maybe a new listener, maybe a first-time listener, Power Athlete isn't just about banging weights and looking sexy. We are philanthropists, people. So we are part of a 501c3 charity called Wade's Army in honor of one of John's and Kate's, John Wellborn and his wife Kate's, uh, childhood friends. They lost a child to a nasty pediatric cancer called neuroblastoma. And we caught news of this. Uh, the power athlete family did. We caught news of this in 2011, 2012 timeframe, right about when John's two darling angel daughters were in the womb and about to be born. And, and we decided to take action and do something. So we started a, a t-shirt fundraising drive so that we could raise funds in honor of Wade De Bruin, and that thing caught traction. And here we are. How many years later are now? We now text six year or six year into this thing, and we're still out here. We're still raising awareness for the most underfunded and most fatal pediatric cancer on this flat Earth, and we're doing it again. So if you were part of Wade's Army's fundraising efforts in the past, you're up. Head to wadesarmy.org mm -hmm. to figure this thing out. And we got a new uniform. You want to talk a little bit about the uniform this year? Yeah. Well, we are bringing back fundraising team efforts. And when in line with that team, we're going with a baseball T-shirt. Oh, Wade's Army baseball T-shirt. We're going to have a fresh design front and back. So we're going to have Wade's team name on the front, Wade's Army on the front, and then our our, our leading the charge image and kind of our character's team on the back and pretty fun. And what that means, we need your help. Yeah. Right. We're shifting our gear back to our peer to peer fundraising. And our expectation is, is we get people back on board. You start a team, you help, you go into your local network and you help raise funds for your team that pyramid up to the top for Wade's army. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll help with the messaging, but again, it's going to be, giving neuroblastoma a name. And that's one of the big things that we started with Heather DeBrew and Wade's mama. Cancer's a word everyone knows, but a word that no one wants to hear. Mm -hmm. And we hear about leukemia, breast cancer, but not the leading pediatric cancer. So our mission, simply raise awareness, give neuroblastoma a name, and then kick ass with our fundraising. We got some exciting things where the donations are going this year. Um, I'm ironing out the details there. Future episodes yeah, will, yeah. will lay that cool foundation. Stuff. I got to say, Tex, like this might be too much info for our listeners or not, but I'm typically like, here's the thing, people. What I'm wearing right now is my Wade's Army shirt from, this is 2017. And I wore it yesterday. Yeah, two days in a row. But let me explain. Okay. So first off, I woke up yesterday, which was technically a Sunday. Well, you irrelevant people. And uh, we had a big day planned. Me and the new wife, people. Bed, bath, and beyond. <laughs> no, we were going couch shopping because we need a new couch. Couch is in, we're like three months out from a couch purchase. And I like to slow play this thing. I'm usually this impulse buy guy, but what did I strap on around noon to go couch shopping? My Wade's Army team. And, you know, Ran out of coffee because our house sitter the week before drank all of our coffee. I purchased new coffee. And you drank most of it. Was it good enough? No, it was great, actually. Thank you, Tex. Uh, we just did not plan accordingly. And so I went to stop and get coffee. Dude's like, love that shirt. It makes me happy. Boom. Sparked up a convo, right? Go to the first, uh, the first furniture store. Guy's like, sure, it's great. What's up with that? Boom. Nailed that guy, too. Right? Final couch store. There's only three out of four, three or two out of four gave, gave me a comment on the shirt. And I don't know, like, listen, people, 
it's not my favorite shirt. Like my favorite shirt is probably being shirtless, but it's probably my second favorite shirt. And you walk through an airport. It's a conversation starter. Oh, it's the official travel apparel yeah. of power athlete when we're on the roads. It truly is. It's it, and it's cool to see how it's evolved from year to year. And it's cool to see people. If you've ever seen another person wearing a Wade's army thing, it's like, dude, there's, there's nothing more powerful, right? Uh, so our call to action to you guys, head to wadesarmy.org, start a fundraising team. If you just don't have it in you to start a team and start rallying behind us, um, make a donation, right? To Luke's page. <laughs> hey. <laughs> or whoever you like better between. Oh, let's text. turn this into a competition. All right. And no, speaking, there is competition. Oh, coming God. With it. We'll save that for a later <laughs> podcast for sure, dude. Uh, and if let's listen. Okay. I understand. I went through a phase planning a wedding, lots of things on the horizon where it's like, it's a hard justification to throw some cash out. I get it. I understand. Maybe you have a new kid and you're like, I don't know what the fuck, how, how, how much are diapers these days? What is there a cell phone in this thing? Listen, if you can't make uh, a financial contribution, then maybe be your fundraiser. But if you can't make that fundraising effort either, then help us by sharing some of our social posts by following us on Facebook, by following us on, on Instagram at Wade's army and just help us raise awareness. And truly it does wonders. I've had many friends help out spread awareness and it just gets our message out, which is a well thought out, truthful, heartwarming message to try and help these freaking families who are going through literally hell trying to help these folks and just get it out in front of people's eyes. And, and everybody that we can educate who can, who can start to make a connection between cancer, pediatric cancer, and most importantly, neuroblastoma, I think is a big win. And you can, you can help with a repost. It's a fucking two second, five click thing on your phone. Like make it happen people. Or you know what? Do nothing. And we're never going to know if you do nothing. Cause we don't even know who you are listening to this. We don't even know if anyone listens to this, but you have to live with that shame that you had the opportunity to make change and you made the decision not to. Ooh, heavy shit right there. Tex. Speaking of heavy shit, like East true eccentric, like, like that 90 pound <laughs> dumbbell. Like let's say I was going heavy with one twenties, right? What happens truly? What is happening as we go through these eccentric phases? I mean, it's not just a pump. Honestly, it's, it's so much more and there's so much more mechanics to it, like really nitty gritty. So folks, even if you're like a layman and you don't know what the fuck we're talking about with the centrics, strap yourself in. Cause you're going to learn something, uh, a thing or two about how to train here with purpose. And let's say you have an injury that you're recovering from even more. Ooh, so yeah. even more so of a reason to listen to this episode coming up with Dr. Lindsay Lepley. Uh, you tell us about you. How did, what are you doing now and how did you get there? Sure. Um, so my career, so I, uh, I started out, um, working clinically at an interest in, um, sort of helping folks sort of recover after injuries and sort of mixing that with athletics. So for me, um, I was primarily interested in pursuing athletic training as a clinician initially. Um, and I started to sort of question some of the things that I was doing in a rehabilitative setting, you know, like, why are we doing ultrasound for only eight minutes? Well, that's what, you know, insurance reimburses for, or, you know, why, like, how come we're only doing therapeutic exercise for 15 minutes? Well, you can charge, you know, it's all based on charges. Um, and it became sort of a very cookie cutter approach. And I didn't, I didn't really like that. Um, but that was sort of my favorite part of working clinically. So it sort of drove me to go to go back and say, 
you know, are there other ways that we could be looking at rehab, um, particularly after musculoskeletal injury that are more effective um, and that clinicians could be using? Are there ways that I could sort of shape um, the current clinical recommendations? So that's kind of what drove me back sort of out of the clinic, but still having my research centered around what I did, what I enjoyed doing most, which was the rehab and, and, and working alongside the athlete. And what are you um, at now? Like, what is your day-to-day today? Sure. So I'm at, um, so I'm an assistant professor at UConn. Um, I'm in the kinesiology department. And I also have a joint appointment in orthopedics. Uh, my day-to-day varies. So I have two different types of labs, uh, both center around trying to find ways to help people recover after musculoskeletal injury, particularly with an ACL focus. But I have a rat lab and a human lab. Um, not in the same building, uh, but I do things on both scales um, because, uh, you know, there are questions that we have that can simply not be answered um, prospectively or retrospectively by bringing humans into the lab and it requires an animal model. So um, we have both sort of houses running here. Nice. And then McQuilkin, refresh my memory how we found Lindsay. We she was mentioned during our Dustin Grooms podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that Holy is God. number two, five, nine, okay. check back. And we went crazy on, I guess, neuromuscular rehab and the approach that ATCs are currently applying mm-hmm. outdated. And mm-hmm. so he kind of, I guess, was was pioneering a different approach and perspective from his experience. And that led to connection with Lindsay. And then we're going to, I guess, aim to dive deeper in a little bit more kind of, I guess, rehab from ACL injury, her expertise, and then into some selfish things that we want to learn about eccentric training. Nice. So Lindsay, is, do you, do you share, are you, do you share the same sentiments as old Dusty that there's a gap that we need to fill or what? Yeah, I, I certainly do. Dustin and I were um, actually classmates when we were master students at Virginia. That's how we, we met. Okay. Um, and so we've remained sort of close friends. And uh, when we were both in the midst of finishing up our, our PhDs, he, he was at Ohio State, I was at Michigan, we sort of found this sort of connection between our lines of research. So we're not, you know, just drinking buddies, but um, we actually have sort of a mutual line of interest. And that deals with um, the ability of eccentric exercise to really target sort of neural uh, deficits and as well as morphological deficits um, after injury. And, and we're I think we're both trying to change sort of the perspective and the dogma that eccentric exercises is dangerous. And in fact, we think it can be fairly beneficial. So Dusty takes more of a, a brain approach to it. Um, my approach is more um, from a muscle mechanic uh, physiology standpoint. So can I jump back? What were the two deficits that you mentioned earlier, just a moment ago? Sure. So we take a look, our, our primary focus is looking at alterations in neural activity and alterations in muscle morphology and sort of the interaction between those two after major injury. So what is muscle morphology? What is that? So it's like change. Yeah, sure. It's uh, like changes in the architecture of the muscle, how thick it is, how pinnated it is, um, whether there's fat infiltration, things sort of along those lines. Um, I also mentioned the term muscle mechanics. So that's thinking about the muscle on more of a micro level of like, how are the fibers shortening? Um, are they rotating at all? Um, thinking about it on the more individual sarcomere level, which is sort of like the Lego or the building block of muscle. Um, so those are those are big focuses for us. So muscle mechanics, muscle morphology, and then uh, neural activity. 
And the deficits tend to come from these injuries and surgeries? Yep. Um, you know, something as simple as just an ankle sprain, there's, you know, a big sort of group of evidence to show that in and of itself will cause a neural uh, deficits that could transform into deficits in muscle later down the line. Yeah, I got that. I got some morphology going on, Tex. Yeah. And I, I guess a big popular term going around in the strength and conditioning world, remodeling. Mm-hmm. So is that, I guess, a layman's term for muscle morphology to, I guess, piece together the neurological change and the structural change? Yeah, or- I think I think that, that term works for that. I think it's just about sort of building muscle, muscle up, um, muscle form follows function and Mm -hmm. muscles are very plastic material. So whatever way you overload it, it's going to respond to that, which is a really great thing about muscle. Um, but muscles also very lazy. And if you don't challenge it, it doesn't, it doesn't remold, it doesn't transform. And I think that's part of the problem with the standard prescriptive approach um, concentric exercise simply doesn't overload the muscle to the extent, um, that it needs to be overloaded in particular because of the environment that's so challenging after sort of bigger time joint injuries. So what, yes, I was going to say that. So as you frame that statement, right, concent- concentric muscle does not overload sufficiently. Yep. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm misphrasing, but that's within the confines or context of recovery from surgery. Or is that, would you say yeah, like globally, because I, mean, I guess, you know, we're, we're marrying worlds here, right? And on the, our end of the, the spectrum here, power athlete, we're dealing with healthy, healthy yep. athletes, right? Who still need to benefit from the exact same type of training responses you're talking about in terms of getting, you know, back to play or back to normal or functional, however you want to phrase that, right? And it's, it's just a, I guess, where am I, what am I trying to bridge here in the sense that can we say that same sentiment, that same statement for a athlete who's training with a goal to be faster or stronger or more yeah, agile? I, I think so. I think, again, muscle form follows function. So as long as you overload it, you know, if you're overloading at a certain speed or at a certain length, muscle is going to respond. Um, and, you know, it will either get bigger, longer, or it will switch its phenotyping to be more advantageous to you. Um, but if you only load it at sort of a lower intensity, it just, just kind of like the heck with that, right? What's the point I'm doing just fine. So you kind of have to up the intensity level. And that's sort of the nice thing about eccentrics is that, um, it's able to do that at a low metabolic cost to the individual and you kind of get more bang for your buck. Yeah. And this takes us back to field strong testing week, like three, right? Uh, Field Strong is a training program, Lindsay, that we push out to a bunch of followers. And, you know, we would, guys were complaining and gals were, that they just weren't getting, they weren't seeing the increments they thought they would have. And we had them start submitting videos of their training maxes, whether it was a triple or a double, or I don't think we did singles. Do we do singles? No, it was doubles. Yeah. And one of the observations we saw was people were just moving slow, slow. without that deliberate, deliberate attention to speed. Right. Even in their warm up sets, we suspect they're going slow. And guess what? Like you train fast, you be fast. You train slow, you be slow. And that, that's our that's our simpleton way. And one of our mantras that we had on our traveling seminar was, hey, guys, you, you know, you got to put some velocity behind the bar. Like, it's just that simple. You have to move fast if you want or train fast if you want to eventually move fast. And then the yeah. I guess the chain there is that within the domain of sport field sports specifically, uh, speed is king, right? So the faster athlete tends to be the athlete that comes out 
and prevails. It's, it's the equalizer. Right, right. So it's just, it's great when we get just, you know, we're, we're reaching out into the periphery and meeting these, you know, new experts in your field like yourself. And it's just, you, you start to hear the, the same type of messaging, but from a much smarter person. Right. (laughs) So it adds a little credo to what we're talking about. Right. Or it continues to add credo to a lot of these isms that we push out to our followers on the radio or following on the program. But uh, what do you got text? Well, one of our famous isms, you got to stress to progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lindsay, you're summing that up beautifully. So let's get into let's get into the eccentrics. Uh, One thing I do want to lead us down is towards your article or your journal submission, kind of shifting the clinical perspective. So if we can lead ourselves there, let's get into, I guess, the the basic approach of eccentric from a clinical perspective and see if we can attack this concentric training bias. Sure. Um, so, so there's been a lot of really, really well done animal model benchtop research, um, you know, that is shown basically for the last century that anytime you lengthen a muscle, there's damage and there's damage at the sarcomere level, which are sort of like the building blocks of muscle. Um, and this, this, this research has undoubtedly contributed to our knowledge of like what happens when you injure a muscle or something along those lines. Um, the challenge is, is that, that those benchtop models have been misapplied to the clinic. And what I mean by that is in these experiments, they've taken these rats or mice or, and they basically disarticulated the tendon. They've cut the tendon off of the joint and they've then pulled the muscle. Okay. And they've pulled the muscle beyond anywhere beyond like what you would ever see clinically, right? It's 60% extended beyond what you would see clinically. And and what happens every time they do these experiments is that you see a lot of muscle damage. So this notion that anytime you lengthen a muscle, there's muscle damage, you know, you can go to PubMed and you can type in eccentric exercise and muscle damage, and you're going to end up with thousands of citations because this has been a really good way to study muscle injury. Um, the problem is, is that these muscles aren't attached to the joints anymore. So this doesn't happen clinically, um, but it's sort of seeped its way into sort of the clinical, I don't know, clinical Bible that anytime you do a sort of a lengthening exercise, you're, you're in trouble. And in part, it's, it may be because um, you guys may have experienced this yourselves. If you're sort of novice to the activity, you get what's called delayed onset muscle soreness. DOMS. Um, and the thing about it with eccentric exercise, I think that people have misapplied thinking that when you have DOMS and you're really sore, that must mean that you have muscle injury. Um, but the thing with DOMS is, is if you don't do anything, it goes away. So after you do eccentric exercise and maybe you're novice at it and, you know, for the first 48 hours, you can be pretty sore, but if it were truly a muscle injury, you would have to do something right? Some sort of treatment or rest to make that go away. And with DOMS, you know, it's self-rectifying and it may in fact be a pro, like a good inflammatory response. That's, you know, creating maybe initiating more sarcomere growth or, you know, initiating maybe a phenotype switch, but people I think have sort of misinterpreted that. And when your patients are sore and they come back to you complaining, that also doesn't do you a lot of good sometimes as a clinician. So I think it's a lot about sort of this mis imprudent translation of these animal models into the clinic and then people sort of taking that and, and running with it. Um, so the point of that article that we published, I think about a year ago was just to sort of encourage clinicians to think about shifting away from not using eccentric exercise to thinking about the ways that it can particularly enhance 
neural excitability that can be damaged after uh, injury, as well as unique characteristics of muscle morphology that truly aren't well um, targeted with sort of the traditional concentric approach. So let's just go ahead and run a new surgical procedure by everybody that I've thought here listening to Lindsay. Detachable muscles where you get like a detachable tendon on your bicep, right? And you just strength, you lengthen it further than you ever could. So you get a more potent training response from less work and then you just attach it back up. No, they're actually doing that. Uh, what? Lindsay, have you seen the parents that are giving their kids like Tommy John surgery to help strengthen the ligament oh, so God. their baseball careers will last longer? Have you seen this? I'm in. I have not, but that is not something I would recommend. So hang on. So you're saying that's extreme. Okay. So detachable ligaments, we're going to just table that till we get the medical like research behind it. We'll work with the, the, obviously the rat model to figure that out. Would you do it though, Tex? No way. Yeah. Biceps though? No, no, no. Like mine? Um, no, (laughs) no shortcuts. I'm just going to take my genetic potential and max it out. Even if it's less than everyone else, it's called D3 (laughs) all-star. Um, so I guess kind of with the, this idea and how has communicating the change in a clinical approach, how have you done that? Are you working with other ATCs? Because I always had a difficult relationship with the ATCs of my teams and communicating, I guess, uh, getting them back to full speed. We had to prepare for the forces of the field, but that was always a difficult conversation. So how, what are the appeals that you're delivering to the people you're working with? Yeah. So right now it's a lot about sort of putting articles out like this and basic, you know, journals that we hope clinicians will pick up and going to conferences and sort of giving what we hope are exciting and informative talks to say, like, look, guys, like everything that you've learned about eccentric exercise is more of a benchtop model. It doesn't necessarily always apply to, you know, what you may need to be doing sort of clinically. And so you know, we're trying to sort of spread the information that way. Uh, you know, we have a pretty big uh, athletic training program, DPT program, uh, doctor of physical therapy program here at UConn. And it's, you know, just sort of educating the next generation to, you know, not uh, to not avoid this type of exercise and to sort of give them the background information for why people fear it, but that show them that it's sort of an, an imprudent translation. So as we, and we at our seminars, Educate our folks in case they don't know about the muscle contractions, right? Concentric muscle contractions, shortening of the muscle. Isometric would be a kind of force equal to force produced. So dumbbell exactly equals the force you're putting into it. So you're not getting any sort of movement on like a 90 degree arm bend for a bicep curl. And then eccentric is the lengthening of it. And then we go into, um, I guess, two variations of our eccentric training model at the seminar. And I think tech shot you over some video on it. Do you want to jump into this now? Yeah. And I guess how we describe these are eccentrics, which is the lengthening and then true eccentrics, Mm -hmm. meaning you're trying your, your darndest to hold a position, but then the force is too great. And it it's forced that lengthening of whatever muscle we're targeting. Um, So I guess in the research of eccentrics, which form are you applying for testing in your studies have you done anything with that true eccentric where we're trying to rip that athlete apart, literally? Um, so I think that the big thing is, like in terms of under, so the word eccentric means odd. Um, 
And in part, the way the reason that lengthening contractions are labeled that way is for a very long time. And, you know, there's papers now coming out in like 2015. Scientists simply have not understood how an eccentric contraction actually occurs. And so that's, I think, part of the problem in sort of translating it back into the clinic. And one of the key elements of muscle that is sort of recently been discovered in terms of its role in eccentric exercise is titan. Um, so titan is this very springy, elastic protein that's in muscle that makes it stable when you lengthen it. Um, and it's part of the reason that when you do eccentric exercise, it's a lower metabolic cost because it takes energy to have actin and myosin cross bridges at the sarcomere level, but it doesn't take energy when you engage titan. It just kind of gives you bang for your buck. So I think the key thing to answer your question about eccentric exercise is if you engage titan, it only happens when you lengthen the muscle, that titan is truly engaged. And if titan is truly engaged at the center of the sarcomere, it opens up some unique pathways that promote muscle growth. But if your titan's not engaged and it's not lengthened, it doesn't open up. So it's like this unique gating mechanism to creating more muscle as long as you have tension on the muscle. If you don't have tension on the muscle, you don't get it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is it any tension? Or it's, it's a lengthening tension in particular okay. that seems to be the most beneficial. So mm -hmm. the more you tension it, the bigger the response. So then following that curve, right, if we go into a maximal voluntary contraction and we force an athlete through the lengthening portion of that, that would theoretically be the maximal amount of, well, I guess not. You could just like rip them. Like, you know, imagine holding some, yeah. like having somebody sure. hold like a low row attached to a tow rope on the back of your pickup truck and you just floor it and you rip their fucking arms off. That's probably too much. I could do it there. But uh, no, so we, you know, the, the I would say it's a controlled, it's a controlled lengthening, exactly. right? In, in a physiological range of motion. <laughs> and then you could be okay. Yeah. And that's, and that is what we're targeting with a lot of manual resistance stuff. And I would say, um, I don't know, what percentage of the people actually have been to our seminar and have gone through the MR protocols? I mean, those are like 2011, 2008 to 2012 is when we did a lot of the MR stuff, which is many resistance. Yeah, we still had some, I guess, to paint the picture uh, to our videos uh, or our, our, vi our listeners, mm -hmm. we've got some videos, but imagine a Nordic hamstring curl, mm -hmm. right? Or a partner hamstring curl where if Luke set up kind of, I guess, active dorsiflexion feet, knees, he's got a straight line from his knees all the way through the top of his head. And then partner number two is going to be right behind him. I put my knees behind his feet, put all mm -hmm. of my weight I can into his heels. And he's going to try to curl his heel towards his butt as he starts to hinge forward at the knees and then this is no way Luke can hold this position, mm -hmm. right? Because top heavy. he's a top heavy guy, he's but one. his hamstrings are lengthening, right? Lengthening and strengthening. And then we, uh, I guess with all of our eccentric work, Lindsay, we follow it with dynamic movement. So mm -hmm. we kind of take away, uh, I guess our reasoning behind it. We're taking away a neuro neurological pathway for them to execute a pull up hamstring curl, what have you. But then we try to, I guess, create a new pathway and doing a dynamic movement, whether it's jumping after the hamstring curls or as you observed in the videos, we do manual resistant pull up, but then have them do one, two or three strict fast pull ups to kind of gain a new pathway. Um, so I guess to paint the picture for the listeners, that's what we're discussing when we're talking about our manual resistance protocols. Right. So and then did, did you get a chance to watch those videos, Lindsay? 
I did. I did. Yep. And I, so, I, I see what you're talking about. I think um, in terms of the muscle mechanics, I think one of the things muscle is going to be most responsive if you continually sort of expose it to that condition. So if you're going to be um, doing a controlled lengthening within somebody's range of motion, I almost would say that you want to continue to sort of overload in that direction, because if you can quickly start shortening again, then your muscle is going to say, look, I'm at the length that I need to be at. Um, you know, that's not to say that you can't do, you can't do those motions. Um, but I would almost, I would wonder if you would get a bigger response. If you also, if you just did a really controlled eccentric movement and then you concentrically put them back into position without them using a lot of their own force. Mm -hmm. And then you did a controlled eccentric again. Mm -hmm. So like an assisted variation of that vertical pull, yes. right? Yep. Yep. So where they're, where they're able to, they're able to move fast. Yes. And then you help them shorten back into position and then they move fast in the lengthened position again, because that's going to uh, be the tension that you need okay. to put on the muscle. Uh -huh. I gotcha. Hmm. Well, we're going to try that then. Yeah, you should. We're it's all about tightening. Yeah. Okay. And which is occurring through that eccentric phase or the length. Right. It's yeah. tightens going to uncurl okay. itself yeah, and it's going to give you sort of a unique mechanism to build muscle in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can certainly, I guess, coach that up in the pull up. Mm -hmm. And it's naturally applied in our lunges when we get into the consecutive, mm -hmm. right? Instead of just one lunge jump at a time, we start to tie them together. So then it's that fast length and strength and length yes. and strength and as we're alternating lunge yes. jumps. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then and through that, through that model, do you see any, are there any neurological components that come to mind in that sort of training response? Yeah, I mean, eccentric exercise, again, it's been understudied in terms of its beneficial results, but um, some of the emerging work that we're seeing and we're putting out sort of on the market is that it uniquely targets sort of the brain and the spinal cord in a different way than concentric exercise does. Um, you know, there's extreme examples of people that have had spinal cord injuries and they are more responsive um, after they engage in eccentric exercise than they do in concentric exercise. Right. And that's, I know that's not the population that we're talking to, but even in most extreme conditions, you know, eccentric exercise is a different way sort of, of priming the neural system than concentric exercise does. And there's some data to show that it may be able to override maybe pathways that are inhibited. Um, so it's kind of unique in that way. Uh, we think it's pretty cool. Um, speaking about uh, Dustin Grooms, we have some collaborating work where we see folks after ACL reconstruction have changes in the way that their brain activates their quadriceps muscle in scanner. Um, and we find that if they're in scanner and we apply an eccentric load, we can upregulate or cause more activity to go to areas of the brain that are depressed. So by simply having them lengthen, we can target areas that have been sort of downregulated, which is like in our mind, pretty cool. Um, I also think, you know, in terms of clinical translation, eccentric exercise doesn't cost anything. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's universally available. Um, it's just being sort of purposeful about your movement. Um, but, you know, by all accounts, it's, it seems to be sort of very beneficial um, to both a neural and morphological system. So it's pretty exciting. So I, I guess seeing the like on a, a quadriceps, right? That hinge joint and a knee injury, how, mm -hmm. how you could apply that, right? I guess there's various ways sitting on like the end of, of a bench and then length, having the knee bend, right? I mean, that's right. you're lengthening, but what about like a, a hip or a shoulder? Is there any research in that realm where it's a little more complex of a joint? Yep. 
Yeah, there's actually some data uh, coming out of the University of Kentucky that's particularly shoulder um, specific, and, and they've seen that if you apply a certain um, a purposeful eccentric program where you're lengthening folks in a certain direction that they'll gain range of motion and it will stick. Um, and this is, you know, particularly beneficial if you're talking about, you know, pitchers or throwers and they have specific ranges of motion that they're shortened in, you know, using eccentric exercise can sort of restore or give them more range of motion to help sort of with physiological function. So yeah, it's not specific to the lower extremity. It works in the upper extremity as well. Um, case in point, if you just cast somebody in a position and you cast them in a lengthened position, that's kind of like passive eccentrics, your muscle will grow longer. Hmm. So it's like so, rookie of the year, yeah, <laughs> yes. which brings us to rookie of the year. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's muscle is very responsive and if it thinks it needs to be longer, it will get longer. If it thinks it needs to be thicker, it will get thicker, but you have to, you have to challenge it in that position. Trick it. What? So then practically, practically walk me through how you could do some purposeful eccentrics in a shoulder joint. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work done when folks are uh, post-operative or they're seeking sort of certain gains where there's a lot of like table work with manual resistance. So not unlike the videos that um, you showed where a therapist is going to push them in a position of lengthening and then help them return their arm in a, the concentric phase and then challenge them again. So it's just manual overload into whatever sort of range of motion that they're mm -hmm. deficient in. So it's not like this is rocket science mm -hmm. at all. Um, it's, it's actually quite easy. So you could push somebody into, you know, greater shoulder extension. And if they resist that range of motion while they're lengthening and you do this, you know, a couple times a week, you know, eventually your muscle is going to adapt. If you do it at a faster speed, you're going to get faster twitch phenotyping, you know? Mm -hmm. And just, to, I guess, to highlight one of the benefits of the manual resistance and in that clinical setting, the athlete's going to have stronger, weaker points of their range of motion where we have a weight yeah. It's going to be constant, but then a, a clinician or a coach can adjust the stress to the athlete's current, uh, you know, abilities in that range of motion. And so while it may not be as, I guess, measurable for a spreadsheet or to type in, we can then kind of feel that and sense that and, I guess, make a mental note as a coach or a clinician. I mean, the other way to sort of look at that is, you know, what if you got data on that person initially and you found that they were particularly deficient in a certain range, right? That's the range then you then work with them in a manual resistance protocol because that's where the muscle is then going to be built. Yeah, case in point, the boys we uh, we filmed this morning working through some of those MR pull-ups, they do, they're, they're CrossFit guys and they do a lot of kipping pull-ups, right? So it's where it's, you're kind of using this ballistic movement and notoriously as we work with folks who do that type of stuff and, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, whatever your position is on a kipping pull up listeners, the, the reality is at the bottom of that, as you, as you come down and hit the bottom point and you're totally extended, there is kind of this elastic rebound. That's like a rubber band that catapults you up a little bit and you get to skip the bottom portion of that pull, right? These guys were terribly weak at that last, like, four percent of range of motion because they never use it they're using but that's where they should be training exactly and like <laughs> so like the, what people forget is like there's a, a lot of the tactics within the realm of the competitive crossfit crossfit space is trying to use the kinetics and like kind of hack it to make it as easy as possible to get minimal energy expenditure which is i'm not discrediting it i it's i call it the sport of laziness because whoever can be better at being lazy wins 
But so why don't you hard. win? Because I'm bad at being lazy. I'm like really lazy, like really lazy. Or I'm yeah. really on. You turn well, me on, I go. I guess. But we've seen an evolution in that approach, right? We, mm-hmm. um, we talked about the 26 CrossFit games in which they introduced uh, a pegboard. So, Lindsay, I don't know if you've ever seen like kind of rock climbing yeah, style yep, yep. pegboard where yeah, we're holding, you know, an isometric yep. hold in that 90 degree ish position mm-hmm. or fighting. Yeah, the I guess eccentric yep. when you are kind of, I guess, one arm in there and the legs are moving. Mm-hmm. And I guess the benefit, because we had an athlete that we applied the manual resistant pull ups. And I guess, Lindsay, she was coming off a bicep tear surgery and a big I guess, tool that we got her back to her hundred percent was the eccentrics of, especially in the pull-up kind of give her confidence in her new, her new bicep. And then it turned out luck of the draw a movement, which required heavy isometric and eccentric strength. And she crushed it. So it was, I guess we'll probably see more pegboard, but um, I don't know where I was going with that, but I guess the strength at the bottom or well, for full range of motion. Well, going back in and looping into where, where Lindsay was talking about that, you have somebody who's where they're the most efficient. And, and we see this also bringing on young female athletes with a vertical pull or pull mm-hmm. up. It, it tends to be one of the harder movements for them, just that, with a lack of upper body strength for whatever reason. Um, but we find, again, eccentrics, like that's always where we've been pointing people on this vertical pull thing is like control the eccentrics, control the eccentrics, keep going, keep going, try your concentric. Nope, not there. Control the eccentrics, right? And keep looping through that. And it's a great tool for that specific movement. But I guess where else could we be using this, this tool? And I guess we see it inadvertently well, I, with like a barbell back squat or a lunge. Well, we right? see it in our movement development model. It all, it begins with eccentrics where I guess we take for granted if we ask an athlete to jump to the top of a pull-up bar or hold that barbell on their back, that's an isometric hold. But where do athletes begin? Some that have that ISO strength from, from life, climbing trees, I don't know, they begin in there. But if they don't have it, we begin them in that it is a true eccentric, but it's just not from the, 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 the power, the level of where we're pulling and gripping each other down. But we ask or assist that athlete to the top of a pull-up, and just let gravity do its work. That's a true eccentric. It's just not as, you know, aggressive mm-hmm. as ripping and pulling them down. Uh, let's see. So I guess, is there a, is there approach? I know tempo training is, is kind of, it's big when it comes to application of eccentrics to strength and conditioning. So is there any, I guess, approach from your perspective of tempo versus this true eccentric? I think it all depends on, you know, what the particular goals of that athlete are. I mean, you simply, so there's a lot of data to show that if you take a muscle biopsy from a cross country runner versus a lifter, their phenotyping is very different, right? Because a cross country runner is consistently exposing themselves to, you know, more aerobic type of activities. So they have slow twitch muscle fibers, whereas somebody that's, you know, more of a lifting type of person has more fast twitch and, I guess there's a little bit of debate in the literature. Do you choose the sport that's like genetically your predisposition to, and it just happens to work out that way. But I think there's enough to show that again, muscle form is going to follow function. So I think it depends on what you need to do. Um, One of the things I think sort of in realm of this is we, the concentric approach, I mean, your quadriceps are not a concentrically functioning muscle. 
So why would you rehab them that way? Or why would you try to strengthen them that way? So part of it is we just try to think about like, what does this muscle need to do to be successful? Then you need to overload it with that type of activity. Um, you know, we've talked about sort of the unique gating mechanism that eccentric exercise does, but it also promotes like satellite cell growth and other things. So, and satellite cells being sort of the stem cell of muscle. So there's a lot of good reasons for why when people have do consistent sort of lengthening activity, they get sort of this improvement um, as you're, you're opening up a lot of different mechanisms that's going to grow muscle and also target the neural system. You got some notes coming, Tex? Yeah. So I guess on this concentric approach, and I guess yeah. while my, my mind is still on the sport of fitness, the sport of laziness, as Luke calls <laughs> it, uh, I guess efficiency. Oh, that's a good way to put it. And we are seeing extremely quad dominant athletes either prevail or become a product of their training. I don't know, but uh, they it, it is a concentric sport, right? And then we see injuries appear when eccentric forces find their way, like rebounding from jumping over a box or any of a falling down from a rope climb attempt. That's when those injuries occur, when they do face those eccentric forces. So I guess from uh, what we've seen and witnessed from that sport, and then you've witnessed a clinical issue with concentric training bias, like what can we do about this? I guess from our training perspective of how do we, how can we, I guess this is my question. How can we effectively introduce eccentrics to concentric athletes? What's that? Is there a, something you've done from the clinical approach that we can now apply into strength and conditioning? I think so. I mean, we're not recommending that everybody sort of throws everything out the window. What we're recommending is that you are purposeful with, you know, adding a couple of things either to your rehab scheme or to your strengthening protocol that are eccentrically focused. Um, you know, in terms of intensity, uh, the literature is pretty consistent in showing that you need to train at least at 60% of your one rep max to get sort of a return in results. Um, so that's one thing that we recommend um, from a clinical perspective. We see that people that train for um, just have 12 treatment sessions, if we're thinking about quads, um, four sets of 10, they have sustained benefits in eccentric exercise. And that's not really, you know, two treatments a week, six weeks you know, that's not one exercise that's different than everybody else. And you have sort of these sustained benefits. Um, so I think it's just, it's about what do you need to do and then training um, within sort of that, that need um, and just being purposeful with like one or two different types of exercises. Um, and I think your muscle will adapt. So we're talking a lot about muscle. What about, is there, how, what's tendon, tendons role in any of these eccentrics and or any of your research? Do you find, your, is there any, any parallel? Yeah. I mean, so certainly we can look at people with, you know, hamstring strains is like a big thing in sports. Um, one uh, therapy that's been found to be sort of beneficial at preventing recurrent hamstring strains is Nordic hamstring curls. And in part, because they involve sort of this long eccentric portion. And the truth is, is your tendons connected all the way up through your muscle. So if you, you know, consistently challenge your muscle and have it on, on a lengthened, end of the force length curve, it's going to sort of reinforce tendon structure as well. And it's going to make you um, more resistant against sort of consistent straining events. 
So um, it's beneficial to your tendon as well. Boom. I'm skipping concentrics. No, I'm not saying. No, skip, yeah, skip no, you said that's center. what I heard. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying just being purposeful, you know, with a couple of totally. exercises and you sh it should, your muscle will respond and so will your tendon. What else we got, Tex? I'm processing. I, I want to make the most of our time here. And uh, so I guess one of the battles and one of my longtime missions with Power Athlete is to accelerate, I guess, an athlete's return to full speed. So problem faced at the college level was an athlete was cleared by the ATC, but mm -hmm. say the injury occurred in week, week one or in preseason, and now we're in week four or six or playoff time. The expectation of the sport coach is that athlete's got to go full speed. But I want to think long-term, I guess, protection of the athlete while still maximizing peak performance. So in your experience, I guess, it, research, or as an ATC, how can we, I guess, communicate full speed or kind of protect that athlete, but still get them to optimal performance? So I hope this answers your question. So I'm going to tell you what I would do if I were injured. Um, but what Fair protocol enough. would I, would I follow? And so I think a lot of rehab and optimizing is all about the the timing. Um, and I think after sort of bigger types of injuries, the first thing that you see fall out is you see really big complications in neural um, components of muscle. And then you see sort of these chronic adaptations in the muscle form itself. So if I had a big time injury, the first thing that I would do is I would give that limb sort of a hot second to recover. Um, what I would do is I would use something called cross exercise first. So you guys familiar with that? Term. imagining you go you just blast the other side that's not hurt you blast the other side exactly so cross exercise is this sort of old school um uh type of exercise where you exercise the opposite limb and the side that is non-exercise gets stronger and the unique thing about it is it gets stronger in the muscle that you're training on the train limb so if i'm exercising my right biceps my left biceps will get stronger not my triceps and this has been shown since the late 1800s. This is not something that's new. If you do eccentric cross exercise, you get two times stronger, generally Ooh. speaking. So what I would do if, if I had a major injury and I had to sort of give my limb a moment to sort of recover is I would be doing eccentric cross exercise really hard for the first couple of weeks. I think it's psychologically beneficial as well as physiologically beneficial. Once my joint and or muscle had a moment to sort of recover, um, then I would then I would start doing really high intensity eccentrics um, once I knew that I could control the movement well. And then I would vary the speed dependent on what type of athlete I was. Um, the other thing that seems to be pretty beneficial, and I think that there's clinical trials coming out right now, is the combination of blood flow restriction therapy with eccentric exercise. Um, the benefit of blood flow restriction therapy, um, we mentioned a couple of minutes back that eccentrics, you need to train at like 60% of your one rep max. But what if you your aerobic capacity or something is sort of down-regulated? With uh, blood flow restriction therapy, you can train at like 30%. So you could be doing cross-exercise, eccentric cross-exercise, and then when you are able to sort of load that muscle and you're not really ready to really overload it, you could do blood flow restriction therapy with eccentrics to sort of help sort of recovery. And then you could push to like more progressive eccentrics that are maybe more sport-like. 
Um, so those would be the things that I would be thinking about doing if I were to have a big injury and want to get back quick is targeting the neural factors first with a cross exercise and then overloading the muscle as safely as I could um, with other types of things like blood flow restriction therapy potentially. And then one thing we we advocate for folks as well is if they can tolerate it, some EMS type stuff. Are you read up on that? Uh, yep. We've done quite a few studies with like neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the Dustin Grooms podcast. We had mentioned potentially introducing BFR EMS. No forced eccentrics antagonist to whatever EMS, whatever you're, whatever you're stimulating with EMS. Right. So imagine yeah. hamstring EMS, right. Ramped up max bringing you beyond voluntary contraction. And then like, a couple bros just like wrenching your hamstring open. I think that's what we need to do. Okay. Unless well, Lindsay has any other thoughts. I mean, I don't know if any research has been pushed out like that on some lab. Uh, so we have, we have conducted a small um, preliminary Ooh. clinical trial where we've overloaded people with things like EMS first after ACL reconstruction and then used eccentric exercise on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is, is that um, if you've ever used, high intensity electrical stimulation, it can be very uncomfortable. Yes. Um, and in order to get beneficial results from it, basically most of the labs are showing that you have to turn the equipment pretty much all the way up. Yeah. Um, and, that, and honestly, so we, John, who's not here, he's uh, just came back from a holiday road trip, but he's all read up on EMS. It's He, he attributed, attributes it to recovering on one of a, the more catastrophic in, knee injuries he's had. But that's, you know, folks are asking, like, what's the magic number? And it's way that whatever you can tolerate, and it's got to be more than yesterday, and you got to be able to max it out. Like, that's the only way to do it wrong is to not do it that way, right? And yeah, I can definitely attest. Yeah, you got to really sort of um, take the juice out of the wall Mm -hmm. with it. Um, I think that the data is kind of, it's inconclusive at this point in time in terms of using EMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of really good work from University of Delaware that certainly shows that it's beneficial after ACR reconstruction, but it's at a very high intensity with a unit that's not universally available. Right. So that sort of limits clinical applicability. Um, there are other units on the market that can do it, but uh you have to do it at a very, very high intensity. And, you know, there's not really a lot of work yet to show physiologically at the muscle morphology level, what neuromuscular or EMS types of uh, stimulation can do. So maybe that's where it's benefiting. And we're just, Mm -hmm. we haven't collected that type of data yet, but if it were me, I might try it, but I think I would hinge more of it on the cross exercise and stuff at this point. That that would be my default. Yeah. Um, But it sounds a lot more like, excruciating yeah we'll, it does. we'll combine it them. yeah <laughs> just you can, i mean you cross can combine BFR, them you have to think about it, yeah. oh yeah yep no it's madness let's i guess let's get into the the psychological side of things so you have done a lot of work with acl and i know each athlete is an individual they are different so have you ever experienced i guess the any personal i guess psychological rehab guidance outside of the the clinical approach that you have for re- rehabbing ACLs and returning to play? Yeah. So this is a hot topic in the literature right now. We actually, I have a doc student, PhD student that's sort of working on um, this factor. People are really starting to recognize that there's this sort of huge fear of re-injury or psychological dysfunction after people have had 
major uh, injuries. And one of the hypotheses that we're sort of working on is that we think the neural changes that we see after ACL reconstruction may be initiating some of the psychological dysfunction. So if you look at like animal models and you, uh, you deafference uh, a nerve, there's sometimes psychological changes with that. And we think maybe this could be a link in the ACL literature as well. Um, so I think people are starting to recognize it. We have some working hypotheses as to why it's such a problem after ACL reconstruction. But I think clinically, we haven't done a good enough job up until this point to sort of comprehensively care for most of the athletes. Um, you know, physically, they may be ready to go back in some cases and psychologically, they may not be. Um, and I really don't think we've done a good enough job to sort of take that into account. So maybe things like sport psych um, need to be sort of more of the standard of care when people are getting close to going back to return to play, you know, what are the barriers? What do they need in terms of support to sort of get them back? Um, some people have, there's some literature to suggest that people have this self-fulfilling prophecy and people like being right. So they think they're going to get re-injured. So they get re-injured. Um, you know, so it's sort of this new link that people are taking a look at, but I think in terms of individuals, it's been something that we haven't, we haven't cared for our athlete well enough comprehensively yet. And I think it's something that, um, people are starting to recognize for sure. Yeah, I guess one of the biggest tools that we've had applied to the athlete, aside from, I guess, for upper body, it's been the MR, but then for lower body, it's just been the squat, been the deadlift, been the barbell. And we have their old numbers kind of in our back pocket. So when they return to us from an injury, we put them on our beginner program that we give to basically all high school students or first time barbell users. When an athlete has a new knee, has a new ankle and I refer to it as new because I had an athlete rugby player and she just kept talking about her bad knee bad knee and I wanted to change her perspective saying her new knee so it was just more of a positive light and kind of carry that over to other athletes but this kind of exposure constant to these basic movements to give them the confidence back in their their new knee their new ankle whatever it is and then they've if they've worked with us long enough, they've done this program before. So it's kind of a, I guess, building back in that old idea of muscle memory, but yeah, to build true, confidence. Right? Yeah. Back in that, that new limb. Um, I hope. I other... think, um, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was no, just going to no. say some of the cross exercise literature, uh, people use it after stroke, um, in, in part. So they basically, uh, they limit the movement on the limb that's been affected with stroke. And then they do cross exercise and, they find that it's also psychologically beneficial. I think, you know, if you're exposed to a major joint injury and you see, okay, this is the next exercise that I need to do, right? And you get good at it on the opposite side. I think there could very well be sort of a psychological component to that that could help, you know, with recovery beyond sort of the maybe true neural activity that's sort of crossing over. As my good friend, Ant Lowe, was talking to me about his last trip out here. He's a physio out in Sydney, Australia is just weaving through the biopsychosocial components of recovery, pain management, confidence, right? And um, I saw him, I literally saw him work. Uh, we were working a female PT's clinic who dealt primarily with female athletes on pelvic floor issues, right? So not, not recovery or anything like that. A lot of these gals were former athletes who found themselves in the PT field and had hurt themselves one time or another, right? And one girl hurt herself deadlifting. And part of 
part of this clinic was a practical segment where everybody got to deadlift, right? Right. Whether you've done it or not, you're deadlifting. And, you know, that's where I came in and I helped coach on kind of the barbell side. Ant is far smarter than I am. Uh, but there was a guy who's like, no, I'm not doing it. It hurts. I'm hurt. Right. Boom. Like immediate fixed mindset. And then, you know, like I'm such a fucking asshole. I'm like, fine, don't fucking deadlift. I didn't say that. Not my seminar, but I just kind of stood by, did my arm cross thing. And Ant Lowe did his thing. He like, he tried, he He's just like, that's fine. You don't have to deadlift. She's like, well, you know, I'm hurt. And he's like, you know, you, yeah, you told me, you know, and like kind of just went through and everybody's deadlifting and she's just standing there. And then you could see her like, she's like, I'm in a, I'm in a supportive environment. Right. And then a switch flipped and then she started deadlifting. She's like, oh, it doesn't hurt. It's pain free. Right. And we had coached her up and she's like, well, I don't deadlift like that. Well, maybe, you know, start to make some connections here. And then sure enough, like the bird hadn't deadlifted in six or seven years. And Ant just, she gets to a weight that she's never lifted before. 20 pounds, 30 pounds beyond what hurt her originally, right? She's like, I can't do it. He's like, that's fine. You don't have to do it. But you could, like, he just worked through this whole, like, this whole web of barriers and mindset to get her to lift this thing. And, like, she lifted this deadlift. She started crying. All these girls started crying. And I look <sighs> at Ant. I'm like, how do you do this stuff, man? Jedi mind Dude, trick. he's a Jedi. Like, two, twofold on that question. One, Ant, that's impressive. Well done. You, like, you, you unfucked this girl up, which he's unfucked me up plenty of times. But two, like, just knew how to navigate her personality, Right. And it, he treated her differently, just like he treated like he had a different he dealt different cards to each one of these these PTs who had different backgrounds. And he just knew how to, like, navigate it so perfectly. And uh, that's what makes. But that right there is not scalable. Right. And that takes a long it took a long time. The seminar went 90 minutes over to facilitate this, which not my seminar. I was just sitting there taking notes, learning. But now you're talking about like. Okay, so let's say that's the right way, the holistic way to take this from, you know, from a post-operative injured to ready to play. And you have to massage these personalities and the, the psychology of it, the doubts, the fears to get them going. Like, that's resource intensive. Like, is it practical? Yeah, I guess if you have the, the expertise, but how many folks can you truly affect that way, right? Yeah, I mean, those raise very like logistical questions. But I think the truth is, is that these injuries happen to people, generally speaking, when they're young, um, and they have a lifetime worth of consequences. So, you know, time invested on the front end may pay sort of long term dividends. And, you know, like, the right thing to do is to, if we recognize that this is something that we sort of missed the boat on is to, you know, gather more information and then find sort of supportive resources, I think. Totally. Now we've been talking a lot about like limbs, right? Extremities. Can any, is there anything this, anything from what we've spoke about, can it be transferred to the spine or like thorax area? Or is, I mean, is that kind of a hard. So those are like more, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, those are more like postural mm -hmm. type of muscles, generally speaking. Um, if you have a shortened range of motion within one of those segments, then maybe this type of exercise, exercising at long lengths can help sort of open that back up. Um, but I think generally speaking, it's the muscles that get loaded that would mm -hmm. benefit from this the most because they're your shock absorbers. And this, this type of exercise is sort of, that's the function of it. So right. um, it works best with those types of muscles. Right. And for what, um, it's, what it is worth, we did try 
uh, we did try forced eccentrics on the upper back ages ago with like a good morning where you'd overload what you could like support with a rounded back and you'd lower it down the pins. And then it was, it was me, Nate and Ben and John. And then like everybody would help you stand it back up. And then you do net forced eccentric negatives again. And I don't know what we were expecting. And it just, we got like really, really sore and stiff backs for a week. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how functional, (laughs) like how often in real life you have to be able to do that. Exactly. No, uh, trust me. Like uh, there's a reason that no one listening or who has ever followed our program has seen like 110% round, round back in mornings, like, cause it just didn't work. You know, yeah, and it's that's... not super functional. What I what I what, what I will say is like people that are recovering from like cardiovascular issues, if you have treadmills where they can walk downhill, that's a good way for them to build muscle. It's less metabolically taxing mm-hmm. than them doing other types of exercise. And they're gonna, you know, that's kind of like a way that it could be applied to a very clinical population as well. Boom. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Lovely talk. Yeah. Do you have anything else? <laughs> Thanks. Anything on the top of your head? I got no. a couple more in the bank here. Um, I guess enlighten us on some of your current research. And is anything coming out soon that we can dive into read? Um, so what I'll say is, so we have some animal models where we're tearing ACLs and rats. Um, and That's gnarly. So one of, yeah, right. This is how we pass our time. Um, but what I will say is, we know eccentric exercise is good for uh, the muscle. And we know that a lot of injuries when you have big time muscle weakness, that it, it's sort of a precursor to getting post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So osteoarthritis at an early onset because of some sort of joint injury. The next question that we're sort of asking is, is eccentric exercise also beneficial and protective to the joint? So if we save the muscle, can we save the joint? And so some of the things that we'll be doing with the animal models is we basically run rats downhill, which is eccentric exercise after we tear their ACLs. And so we're going to start looking at sort of the ability to stop or attenuate osteoarthritis development in the knee by just simply changing the mode of exercise. Now, I don't know how this is going to work out, but, you know, wouldn't it be pretty exciting to sort of stop premature OA development simply by just having somebody exercise a little bit differently? Yeah. What, um, about, what about like on a versus a, a treadmill? What about like a step mill, a downward step mill? Yeah. Have you ever seen one anything? There's down, there's bikes mm-hmm. that, that do it where um, the pedals push against you instead oh, yeah, of you yeah. pushing against the pedals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically anything that's pushing against you and you trying to slow it down mm-hmm. would, would work. Reverse step mill. That'd be fucking miserable. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, we can. We can get that going. Well, Lindsay, I mean, you got anything else, big guy? Uh, any, any thoughts on youth? I guess quick, any thoughts on youth training? Or not quick, however long you want to take. Um, I think the biggest thing, in ter- like in, relative to eccentrics, I would, I would guess. Yeah. You got, you got to make sure that people understand the motion that they're going through and that they can, tr- can control it well. Um, I think that's the biggest Thing. You don't want to have, you know, a youth that's unsupervised doing a high intensity workout and then completely like blow through the exercise and cause potentially tendon damage because force has got to go somewhere. So I think it, it's about patient education, observation, um, you know, grading up the loading. And then they, you know, by most accounts, they should be fine. 
Um, but this is definitely something that um, you want to make sure that your patient or your, your uh, client is comfortable with doing. Boom. Seeing, I guess, seeing a connection there, force has got to go somewhere. And I guess a big way that we describe sport competition is it's a greater force than you, we can ever create inside the weight room. And that's almost our argument for investing in proper lifting technique, because we know if it's going to be faulty or shitty or this collapses or this happens in our controlled environment, it's going to happen when the forces are greater. So I guess any any guidance for increasing the forces because you're working in a, a controlled environment that we can carry over to the weight room to help prevent injury on the field. For me, I think it's just you want to mimic the situation as much as possible. You know, if, um, your particular like fatigue is always like a big um, a thing that people worry about in terms of injury uh people training load is starting to become sort of a, a big thing of like overtraining or sport specialization not exposing somebody to enough um i don't know if i have any specific recommendations on terms of like how to tune up the force but i think you just need to look at what that person needs to be doing functionally to be successful and then sort of increasing the intensity on that in a controlled environment so i think it's athlete specific from that perspective specificity specificity overload all of these training <laughs> principles yeah that uh, are often applied especially yeah, we, in the power athlete methodology that's what we preach well Lindsay, i think i think we're running on e over here in terms of questions you got anything else for us no this has been a good experience thanks guys i appreciate it yeah you know what if anyone wants to follow you check into what you're doing are you are you a social media person or what yep we're on twitter we have a lab account on twitter and then i carry my own um page as well all right. What is, so for our listeners, what would that be? What are they going to look up? And we'll throw it in the show notes mine's, as well. Yeah, sure. Mine's at Lindsay Lepley, um, one word. And then um, at UConn SOAR, Sport Optimization and Rehabilitation Lab, um, is our lab account that you are welcome to check out as well. Boom. And any speaking gigs? Are you going to any conferences? We just wrapped up sort of our big conference season. So now we're getting back into sort of big uh, data collection mode to sort of gear up for the next year. So we're pushing out papers um, and big time data collections for the next couple of months. Well, awesome. Good luck with that. And thanks for the contribution and, and recalibrating the lens. So we have a new appreciation in uh, the clinical setting for eccentric training, right? And for giving us a bunch of tips and tricks and I guess substantiating some stuff and giving us some ideas to tinker with as well. Great. Thanks guys. Appreciate awesome, it. Lindsay. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. time for you to empower your performance as dr lepley indicated you can follow her tweets at Lindsay lepley and at the yukon sports optimization rehabilitation feed and now for another installment of this week's reason to attend the power athlete symposium in austin texas december 7th through 9th some people call it networking but let's just call it what it is a massive increase in instagram followers People will be following each other so hard and so fast that if you came to the symposium with even the slightest Instagram follower drought, your thirst for real or fake validation will be quenched almost immediately. No more slumming it with those booty blaster videos or pathetic pictures of meal prep. The Power Athlete Symposium will raise you to the next level of Instagram consciousness, and you will literally never be lonely again. Until next time, bye!
Bye.